I'm Matthew Bosher and welcome to the show. Dave Holmes is our longtime collaborator and our recent project was my fourth time working with him. He speaks to me here about that experience and in reflection on his career as a producer and recording engineer. We cover the unique studio that he operates in London and how he creates a safe space for vulnerability and nuanced performance to achieve the right outcomes for artists. It's somewhat hard to imagine a recording studio on a boat. The design, environment and context is also fascinating. I wonder if you can paint us a picture. Um, sure. So the boat is, um, it's an old light ship. So light ships used to be um, in operation all around the British Isles, um, the English Channel. And they were, they were basically there there's to, to warn boats if there was a you know, shifting sandbanks or anything, rough waters or anything that you wouldn't otherwise know about. They would move these boats around. Um, and they're essentially just an enormous floating light tower that can be seen for 20 miles or whatever. And um, sometime in the 80s, I think, a lot of them were um, automated, so there was not, not a staff on them at all. They were just sort of towed out to where they needed to be and then just left there for sort of months, months on end. But prior to that, they were all, they were all manned, which must have been quite, a, quite an extreme lifestyle. <laughs> um, but our one is um, it's pretty big. I think it's something like 500 and... 80 or 600 tonnes or something. So they're designed to withstand anything, you know, any kind of sea. Um, it's never had a motor, it never had an engine. It's had a diesel generator in it that was used to power the light. Um, so the, the vast majority of the internal space is to do with a big diesel engine and a big fuel tank, which is just there to keep the, to keep the light bulb running, basically. Um, there's a lot of reasons why it kind of makes sense. It's, it's, it's totally decoupled from... From the from the land, so in terms of like transmission sound or spill, audio spill, it's it's pretty good. Once you're once you're within sort of half inch steel, and then built inside rooms within rooms and all that sort of stuff, you really you really can't hear anything from the outside. And um, yeah, there was recently pile driving on a nearby enormous construction site, and we couldn't hear anything inside the ship. Um, but you go out on the deck, and you just couldn't even hear yourself think after that. Um, so yeah, I, it's funny. Like for me, the the fact that it's on a boat is something that I I just am reminded of every now and then. <laughs> I love the studio, and if it was if it was not on a boat, I, I I wouldn't love it any less. I think it's I think it's really interesting, but um, how it performs as a as an actual studio is really what I'm enamoured with more than the fact that it is a boat. But it's not lost on me that it's um it's 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 pretty unique, and it, it, we we get a lot of business just because of the fact that it's a boat. And you're reminded of that every time the tide comes in, the vessel lifts up off the mud. Exactly. So the boat spends probably about, I don't know, 60% of the time sat on the bottom. Um, where we are, on, we're just on the mouth of the River Bow, which leads into the Thames, just opposite the O2 Arena, the sort of North Greenwich kind of area. Um, and the tide uh, comes up and down about seven and a half metres at that point in the river, which I still find amazing. Um, as a, as a straight-up statistic that a river can be that tidal, that it goes up and down three storeys. That's crazy. Uh, so, yeah, the boat is mainly on the ground, but then it does, it lifts up, yeah, for 30 or 40% of the time, I forget what. Uh, and then, you know, it doesn't move around an enormous amount, but it's enough to, to remind you that you're on a boat, but not enough to 
you know, really move a mic stand or, you know, make anyone fall over or feel seasick or anything like that, or at least not yet. <laughs> and so you have this unique recording environment seated within an emerging creative district. Can you talk about the local area? Yeah, so the, the boat is moored uh, at a place called Trinity Boy Wharf, um, which I should probably know a bit more about the history of it, but it's it's basically in the middle of the old London's Docklands area, which, which you know, for hundreds of years was where all of the major importing and exporting into the UK was was done, essentially. Well, that and then Blackpool on the other side of the country, I think. Um, and so the whole Docklands area used to just be exactly that. It would be for the loading and unloading of everything from, from the New World or, or whatever. And um, the wharf itself is... I don't know whether it's in a trust or something, but basically everything else that's in the in, in and around the wharf is all sort of um, loosely sort of creative industries. There's sort of like illustration studios and painting schools and um, graphic designers and, 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 and things like that. So the people that manage the wharf really have a vision for keeping it as a creative hub rather than letting it just sort of turn into more waterfront finance um, office space, which I've watched there's a lot nearby because we're quite close to Canary Wharf in that part of um, London. So it's sort of, it's, it's vaguely East London. It's not too far from Stratford. So the big Olympic Park is really nearby. Um, and then closer to us, there's a, a huge development going on um, called City Island, which is sort of terraforming this old Docklands landscape, which um, is sort of very industrial, you know, think sort of warehousing and containers and sort of old rusty bits and pieces of stuff. Um, it's all getting, turned into apartments and it's like the London Film School's moving there, the National Ballet School's moved there already. Um, and it's beginning to get populated with, with people who are moving into the all of the sort of skyscrapery type of apartments. So that's all kind of right on our doorstep. And I think in another year's time, um, the roads that, you know, that we've been sort of walking or cycling down to get to the studio, which have been basically quite empty industrial streets, are soon going to be sort of... Um, rich and full of all sorts of people and shops and uh, whatnot. And so I, I don't really know how that's going to affect the studio. I, I guess it won't, I hope, affect it too much. But if it does, hopefully in a positive way. And you and your business partners have a history of working in heritage sites or environments with character. Prior to working on the boat, where were you situated? Yeah, so we still um, actually have our old site uh, in Cable Street, which is in part of London called Limehouse, um, which has got all sorts of history in it, Limehouse. I mean, it wasn't that long ago that no one went into Limehouse. You didn't go into Limehouse. It was that kind of East London. I mean, I'm talking like 100 years ago sort of thing. Um, and it's uh, still pretty rough around the edges, but um, there's, this, there's a famous street there called Cable Street, um, which I think used to literally be where they made cable. Um and it's uh, it's at the very end of Cable Street. Um, there's a big old sort of artist compound, communal sort of space um, called Cable Street Studios. And within that, we had our previous uh, Super Studio had its previous life. Um, and we still actually have that um, access to that studio. We've sublet it to some other folks now. But um, if we need to record our grand piano or something like that, we can head back there and, and use that space. Um, which is cool, and it's cool that it's still going. Um, we left that space, um, well, A, the, the boat came up and we thought, oh, yeah, let's take that. Um, but prior to that, we'd always had a fear that that 
our old place at Cable Street was always under threat. Um, the whole of that area, Limehouse, Shadwell, they've all, there's been a lot of development there, a lot of apartments being built to sort of service the city workers and the, and the, the, the fin, fin, financial people at Canary Wharf or whatever. Um, and we sort of thought at some point a developer's going to kind of get the get the coin together to grab our site because it was so huge. You know, the Cable Street compound was something like 200 units um, of quite a large space. Um, and we just, we, we were only ever given a, a one-year lease at a time, which when you're running a business is a bit sort of scary, you know, to sort of think, well, at from any point, 12 months into the future, we could we could have to be going to find somewhere else. And where do you find another site to to build or to move into uh, to set up a recording studio? So you have to sort of um, take the opportunities when they present. So when the when we found out about the boat, it just I mean, it was one trip there to look at it, and then we just thought, yeah, there's no way we will find anything as perfectly set up as this to move into. Um, but we have a lot of love for our old site. We miss the parquet flooring that was in there. Um, it was actually it was basically designed and built by my colleagues uh, Giles and Simon, who um, got the space and then sort of designed it how they wanted it, and then spent a load of time building it and operated it there for I think seven, six or seven years or something. Um, and it's just great, you know. It was it looked after us for all of that time. It's been a real growth period going into the boat, but um, it wouldn't have happened without that sort of, sort of fertile ground in, inside the Cable Street. Um, studios complex, yeah. And with the effort that's gone into building the brand of the business, it seemed to us at the time that you and your colleagues were part of a growing artistic community that had a lot to do with the jazz scene and other rejuvenated genres. Has that continued to be the case in the last 12 months? Um, well, I mean, going back a little further than that, um, you know, there was a couple of, there were a couple of artists that really helped sort of solidify our studio's place on the London recording studio map, if you like, um, a map which is sort of getting sort of smaller each year. Um, there are places shutting down because they've they've really got an unsustainable business model for the current climate. You know where um, the budgets aren't coming from record labels anymore; they're coming directly from 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 the artist, and the artist obviously needs to um, be extremely careful with how they're funding things and how much they're spending on stuff. So. One of the reasons that our studio has done well is because there is um, three or four of us that are sort of working together, but also independently. And so we do everything we can to help that studio, but then are independently um, able to, you know, work elsewhere or do do whatever we need to do that we don't put so much of a strain on the business that the wage bill alone would would sort of put it on its knees. So the, the our studio runs at quite a light overhead because we're all working elsewhere and have other means of um, working in music but deriving an income that's not reliant on on the boat. Sorry, it's a bit, a bit of a digression there, but there I was I was going to take that back to um, saying that um, one of these artists is a jazz drummer called Moses Boyd who um, went to a, a music school here called um, Trinity College of Music, um, and they've got a sort of jazz degree course that's. Um, been just been really popular and it's in the southeast of London which is quite close to where we're located anyway this guy Moses he um he came in to do a session at some point and that session ended up kind of being picked up by a uh, radio programmer over here called Giles Peterson who does a BBC Radio 6 um, 
sort of new music show that's quite sort of world and jazz music sort of focused. Um, and it kind of got a bit of, it got a good bit of airtime. And so this guy Moses, he's from a, a huge collection of young, um, talented people that are all kind of originating from that part of London, from that school. Um, and we just sort of became the this, this favoured studio for them, I think because we were very affordable compared to um, comparable studios in other parts of London for a similar kind of um, level of quality, if you like. Um, and I think we did that in a way that was, um, you know, people could come in at the start of a day, do an eight-hour session in the studio and then leave with something that really wasn't going to sound too dissimilar from from what it got to at the end of the day and by the time it got on a piece of vinyl. So, um, and, you know, that was costing people 300 quid at the time. So to come in and cut a record for 300 quid, I mean, it's not really... You, you don't really get that in too many places is what I'm getting at. Yeah. Um, and that's because we loved we loved doing it and, and we were fans, you know. This was not, this was not something that was... Um, feeling like the day job, if you know what I mean. <laughs> a couple of things come to mind as you're describing that. You've represented well the uniqueness of the space and the fact that you are so connected into a rich community of musicians. I also understand that the boat is sought out for some of the equipment therein, which is really beautiful. Some of these pieces created the sonic impression that I walked away with and the reverb chamber that you built under the stairs to the generator room the lovely upright piano, the vintage amps, and of course the Dave Holmes cornucopia of effects pedals. <laughs> yeah. yeah. The other thing that struck me as you were talking was it's easy to underestimate the wonderful approach that you have to production and engineering, which allows people to be their best selves because you create an atmosphere where it's okay to be vulnerable. That's certainly not something that I have felt easy about in the past with others. And why I think that we've had such an enduring relationship is that we have created good work together, but I feel safe through that process, even in the moments where you are really pushing us as musicians, coaching and encouraging us to reach to the outer limits of our abilities. I wonder if you can tell us what you think your production and engineering style is and how that differs from others. Mm. Uh, well, firstly, th thanks, man. That's It's really nice to hear that kind of that kind of feedback because to me that you know that is the crux of of good production that you've just you've just nailed um going back to what you're talking about you know nice equipment and whatnot um you know i spend a lot of time fielding questions or inquiries from people which are sort of really gear centric and and whilst that's great it's been quite a long time since i've really gotten super excited about that side of it uh, to me, it's all sort of that's all sort of dollars and cents these days. And yes, of course, it would be real nice to, you know, have X, Y, Z. Um, and I think that, but I think that the tools that I now have are the tools that um, I trust. And whilst a lot more investment would be great, it's just you know you need to live at the same time. Um, so when I have an intern that's sort of like going on about you know, time on an SSL or whatever, with a kind of a slight sort of sense of it's a shame you guys don't have that I just sort of feel like saying yeah but we own this this is ours you know um no one's taken that away from us and we can you know we all, we all pay our rent kind of thing I can't see how you go and buy a quarter of a million pound mixing desk and then feel like that's ever something you're going to see a return on it just doesn't make any fucking sense to me and um 
And but yeah, there are so many great things that are super affordable that you can get in with, you know. And I think you really sweat your assets as well. Oh, absolutely, yeah. There's very little. There are very little things that I've sold. You know, there's very little stuff that I buy and then sell. There's a couple of mixing discs that have come and gone, but they've normally had sort of, you know, life reasons, like major moving overseas or something. So, of course, I'm going to get rid of a large format console kind of thing. Um, but most, mostly I haven't really ever sold anything because I've never really bought anything I didn't want. Um, and also, you know, these days the digital stuff is just, it's just there. It's just really easy and that, like, it all sounds good to my ears. But I'm not as picky about a lot of that sort of stuff as, like, Uber nerds are. And that's great. We, we need the Uber nerds. But in terms of the production thing... Um, I sort of I've drawn a line in the sand, being like, I, I on the production thing, I want to be on the side that's with the person doing the performance, not the side that sort of says, "You give me all the stuff, and then you go fuck off over there, and I'll turn it into something without your involvement." And I'm not saying that that doesn't happen. That's very much a part of the job sometimes, um, and I don't re I don't really know why that is, but um, I don't begrudge it. It's quite nice when someone says, "Here's a bunch of stuff, do whatever you want with it." Um, have a play and we'll see where we get to especially now in this isolation thing that we're all going through I've got like a bunch of projects that sort of fall into that category it's interesting like to have a, you know much more hands off from the client approach to working on stuff is really weird but it's um it's not like it's not fun in some ways staying with that last point for a moment one of the comments that I recall from the boat and reflection on your time as a producer was along the lines of the stuff that I used to care about, the things that I thought were important, don't matter so much anymore. I think that's what I'm getting at, yeah. That the Albinis and others who had set the archetype for you as an aspiring producer earlier in your career now represent that actually there are no rules. Instead, you are led by a combination of intellect and intuition having built up this toolkit over time that gets high utilisation and is reliable for you. So I'm curious, what are the top one or two things that you believe to be true that you take into your projects as a producer? Hmm, that's a good question. I mean, the Albini thing is an interesting one because there's just so much, there's so many interviews where he's saying the same thing, which is basically that um, his his being labelled as a producer is something that that's the main thing he's like I don't really relate to that word I don't really know what anyone means by that and you know I th I, I think that, you know obviously you have to admire Steve Albini's as a recording engineer and just the way he generally has a hands-off approach to record making but I, I think when I think about my you know who I work with like that his approach is niche and it's and it really massively favors certain types of bands and people in a, in a major major way um, but a lot of the work that that I do is with people where we're looking for a sound. We're looking to explore the music. We're diving into the music. We're, we're splitting notes. We're not, we're not just getting a really nice mic in the right place in a, in a beautiful room with the right instrument. There is, that's, that's always a, a massive part of it. But that's the part of it that, um, that, that he doesn't really do, is what, I'm, is what I'm describing, the bit where you kind of, do look at the song and go. I think this is all wrong for you, or, or whatever. However you want to describe production, he doesn't. He doesn't really do that. So, was it a sense that the rules aren't hard and fast? I just think that he, like he, he's he's quite often mentioned in this in this frame. But I think he always says the same thing, and that's that he doesn't pretend to do that. Um, 
people call him a producer, but I think the the, the concept of what, a, what who a producer is to a project is something that's it's it's kind of fairly misunderstood for a lot of people. I think. Um, I mean, I know what it means to me, uh, and I and I know what I see people thinking it means to them. But it's quite hard. It's be, it's become harder and harder these days to sort of um, own own that credit um, and feel like you're not being somewhat arrogant or something like that. It's, it's it, it is difficult. So, what does it mean to you? I think it's when you're the person that's the go-between of um, the person that's paying you and the finished thing that they need to have and everything in between that. Um, that's that's the most kind of like reduced way I can describe it, I think. Um, there are times when uh, I feel like I'm asked to just be a recording engineer and um, maybe there's another producer involved or maybe I've said to the client are you guys interested in any kind of production assistance? Uh, and and the answer is like, no, 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 we're producing this ourselves. And I'm like, okay, great. And then you get into the session and you realise that unless you actually do say something like, are you sure that you want that snare drum to sound like that? Then immediately at that point, you're now, you're offering production assistance. You're offering um, some sort of um, opinion that is going to yield an objectively better product because because you've done this hundreds of times and this might be the second time or even the first time that they've been in a recording situation. So of course you, you've got all of that experience to, to, to walk in with and to, to withhold it seems silly, but then to, to not withhold it and, say, and sort of say, can we talk about my role as a producer within this, a lot of people get their backs up because I think a lot of people want the credit for themselves. They want the story of like, we went in here and we just did this and this was only one take and we recorded 15 songs in a day because we're just this good kind of thing. Um, whereas I don't, I don't really mind about any of that stuff. I don't really mind about the process. However the process needs to go is, is, is all good. It doesn't need to be quick or slow or, or whatever. Um, so um, yeah, I think going back to your point that getting, getting it out of the, the realm of the imagination of the client and into the realm of someone, some third party bring out a press play and listen to it and have and have there be a, a, a generally positive vibe to the entire end result is, is what I consider my role as a producer. And I have this theory about masters of their craft, whatever that may be. If you've met any kind of genuinely experienced professional, at some point they achieve a level of leadership in their field where there is so much humility in how they do their job. You transact with them and they offer you a great customer experience and are able to share their knowledge without making you feel like an idiot. Talking about vulnerability again, it's just a luxury for a band to get into a recording studio. And often we're quite ignorant about how to navigate that. And so it's great to have someone who just makes it okay and a learning experience while at the same time providing years of expertise to help you realise a great performance and product. So I guess I'm not surprised to hear how flexible you are in your approach as to whether you lean in or not for the clients who do or do not want that because you're at a point in your career where you have a high level of discernment. 
And practically speaking, you've worked with a lot of different customers and probably have a good understanding of the psychology of whether people are going to maximize the benefit of going deep with you on something or are not interested and it will just be a contractual gig. Yeah, I mean, that's it. Like it's a, um, there were really a few different facets to, to, to my day job, to the job, I suppose, you know. I had, I put a lot of value in, you know, our working relationship, for example, you know, throughout Domes and Decortica and, uh, and the community, in fact, that um, you, you know, belong to and working with other people within that community as well. I say, for me, that's, that's the best kind of, of, of production um, available to me because I can, I, you know, we have what, over a decade of, of, of sort of not just knowledge of, of musical stuff, but of friendship and of trust and uh, and actually understanding of our of situ- the situations that we're in, you know, and to me that um, it's so much makes it so much more poignant what we do in the studio and what we do with the music to have an understanding of where it's all coming from, um, and all of the um, all of the obstacles that might be there and 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 trying to to remove them as much as possible and give the be- the best opportunity to really maximize not just the output, but the experience of doing it. Because it's, it's never lost on me that this is a luxury thing for people to do. It's not, um, it's the first thing to go when people are stretched resource-wise. Um, so, and it's also like, in terms of being in a band, like it's one of the best things that you can actually do when you're in a band. It's in terms of the most fun, like it's great to be in a band and, you know, rehearse all the time and then go and, play shows and do tours and all that sort of stuff. But there's a great percentage of that that is just eating shit and it's really hard work. But the bit where you get it all figured out and all planned and then you get to go and spend time in the studio is just pure self-indulgent, amazing fun, you know. It's like being, it's being a kid again. It's like the adult version of going, breaking open the Lego box and just making stuff all day long. Um, and I get to do that like a lot of, a lot of the week, which... I'm super grateful for. So um, when I'm working on stuff with people, I want it to feel like that for them. I don't want it to feel like, you know, it's too, too much of, a, of an actual work effort. Um, I'm always aware of getting it done, keeping an eye on the time and stuff like that, but never at the expense of watching someone actually like be just joyful in what they're doing or whatever they need to be to get there, you know. I love the pace we worked at. If we let ourselves, we could have continued on in those sessions until we ran out of steam and our days were long on the boat but structured yes well I mean with with you guys I got to do that you know that's not there is a sort of a slight sense of the meat grinder with running a you know a busy basically commercial studio where every day often is a different situation and obviously not working every single day but sometimes within a week I might have three or four different clients over a seven-day period and they might be anything from jazz to folk to a voiceover to I don't know metal. Say it doesn't. It's it can be really jarring sometimes to sort of come in the next day and go right. Yesterday I was doing big thick, you know, heavy drums, and today I'm just doing accordion um, for, for ten hours. Um, but I love it. I think all of that, and and I I've lost the ability to sort of when someone's like, "What's your favorite?" XYZ music wise, I'm like, I don't fucking know. It's been a long time since I've actually really known the answer to that. Um, and I'm okay with that. I think it's um, better for my 
for my work to not really be, be that fussed. I mean, like, well, you're able to traverse that because you need to with your clientele. I think about young adulthood where often your identity is so wrapped up in the artist that you determine a part of your cultural worldview. It was always really interesting to me to talk to you about the stuff that was adjacent to or the antithesis of what we were bringing to you and have that inform the work. I think the benefit was the moments of artistic clarity or appreciation that in our projects I've been able to get a peek at because of the discernment that you have. Just as when with our high work ethic there were moments that started to become a grind and you would gently say, hey, enjoy it. And just remind us how special it was to be where we were and working together. Equally, as I tried to achieve a level of accomplishment or, or even perfection with a particular piece, as I felt I was getting closer to something, oftentimes you would say, actually we're getting further away from the thing. Let's keep the thing that's not so technically perfect, but harmonically interesting. Well, it's it's working together, you know, like it's, it's for me, it's the whole, it's, it's so sort of mentally um, thirst-quenching, you know, like um, sessions like, like our one, it's sort of equal parts, you know, creative spontaneity, but then also, you know, we, we do know what we're trying to do. We've done pre-production. We understand what the goals are. And so it comes down to these amazing little problem-solving routines that we're all kind of sharing in, in the workload of. Um, it needs to feel like this. It doesn't quite at the moment. Why does it not? You know, is it the notes? Is it the tone? Is it the layering? Is it the tempo? What is it? It's going to be, it's going to be some of these factors. And we need to actually like pull our resources to, to figure out what that is. And that might be from, um, and that might be from, then this is why the working method that we had was really nice where we would have drums down for something in the morning, but then, um, you know, drummer and bass player are still sat there with you to make sure that they're giving their input and you're not feeling like you're out there by yourself in guitar or vocal land. Um, and that is quite different to a lot of bands who, you know, once the bass player and the drummer feel like they've done whatever, you know, thing that they are supposed to do is done. I see it all the time. They sit back on the couch behind me and kind of like point fingers at people taking too long and whatnot, or just are not engaged in what's going on with like little de details, like a backing vocal harmony or something like that. Um, and I think that they should be. I think that there's no real excuse to kind of look at it as any kind of competitive thing and unfortunately sometimes it does fall down to that um, but I'm just reminded you're talking about um, the, what, the pace that we worked and just tying that back to what you're asking about sort of production styles I mean this is one of, the, one of the ways I like to work is to be engineering my own sessions because I don't I don't even want there to be any kind of um, I don't know hold up and getting an idea that might be about to happen safely recorded or something cut cut in place so you can hear something so there's a meet an immediacy to all the ideas that the you know the thing is just always churning and being built right in front of us so we're always excited about the next thing the idea of like having to communicate that through someone else just just so they can operate it so my hands are free to do something else doesn't really there's no benefit to it for me and I always want there to be the ability to kind of go no stop what you're doing and let's turn this up and listen to this because this is fucking cool and we need to be really excited about this right at this minute because I know we're hungry, it's three o'clock, we haven't had lunch, but check this, check this motherfucker out now.
<laughs> and I think if you can keep that pace and going on, and then once everyone's got the endorphin rush, then you're like, great, let's open a beer and have a sandwich. That is a really great summary of what it felt like to work with you. You were running between the control room and the live room, and that's not easy to do on the boat because you've got to clear two flights of stairs. And doing that at pace to capture the lightning in a bottle. I think the thing that I'm most envious of in your work ethic is the relentless positivity. So what I recall about our eight days is all the good stuff, and if I'm really honest, the experience that each of us went through at different times of kind of hitting the wall, getting really frustrated with a bit that was particularly nuanced, or going after something and brushing up against the edges of our capability, or not really grasping what the detail was that we were trying to realise. And it's easy for musicians to feel like, well, I am the client and I am the artist and I'm just going to be a bit grumpy right now. You can all deal with that ego display. My experience was that in moments where you probably could have told us off for having a poor attitude, instead you became more positive and that lifted us all up. My question is, where do you get that emotional resilience from? How do you kind of top up the well and do that every single day for often strangers and sometimes friends to create a great recording experience? Well, I think it's it's, it's just it's a perspective thing for me. I mean, there are no there are there are no bad ideas. You know, there can be wrong ideas. There can be there can be a lot of wrong ideas, um, but you don't really know that they're wrong ideas until you're certain. Um, but I don't really find that bad ideas tend to tend to walk into the studio too often um so i think it's being able to kind of understand when you're just listening to a wrong idea and if you think about it like that then it doesn't seem like there's any any negativity there um it's just it's more like a cool we now know that that's not the right direction thanks for that contribution it's just as useful you know if anyone if someone comes in and goes that's perfect that's perfect that's perfect then almost certainly just something's going to go wrong at some point like that doesn't it doesn't happen it's not the way it works especially when you're trying to create something that um there's no set map for you don't know exactly what it's going to look like when it's done but you know how you want to feel so as long as you're in touch with that um and keeping just i don't know where do i get that resilience from i don't it just seems obvious like if you let it if you let something become into a negative environment like no one's um no one's getting anything done, you know. All it takes is one sort of m member of the team to feel deflated for some reason, um, and that will, um, you know, that will sort of rip through the whole bunch. I find myself often in a position where I'm the only person in the room that can actually say something because of some sort of internal, you know, political or emotional sort of, sort of complex form that's already existing in there, and you get... Um, Oh man, I mean, I, can, I feel like I can spot that sort of stuff a mile off these days, um, which is probably interesting in and in of itself. <laughs> I think it speaks to the role of the producer that you were describing before, which is between the performance and realising the final thing that the artist is going after. There's this role of conduit and navigator. At times you're wearing a coach hat, sometimes it's a counsellor hat, and meanwhile you're trying to execute your technical craft. I don't think we can overstate how important it is to have that sort of role in a truly collaborative environment where everyone is prepared to go after the best vision for themselves and their instrument but are probably going to fall short in some moments and need to be carried through that. 
Yeah, well, and it's encouragement too. It's it's, it's quite nice when you can you can see that you've sort of you've helped cultivate an environment where the su- the support is not something that's being directly um, fed by me. It's it's I'm sort of encouraging it to what's already there to just be amplified, like to remind everyone, like, look, we're here, we're on a boat, and it's a studio. This is pretty. This is worth. This is worth like appreciating, and whatever that, whatever that kind of like niggle is, just leave it at the door because it's not, it's not really useful in here, actually. Um, and yeah, that's that might be. I don't know. There's probably lots of little tricks for that, like just highlighting something that doesn't seem like it's something worth celebrating. It might just be a small kind of like pointing out like a, a drum fill that's particularly interesting, even if it's completely inappropriate. Like to just be able to like make people kind of stop and like peer into like something really small kind of um, I don't know like this it's just, this is the sort of sort of stuff that I'll hear I'll be like oh man that that fill there the way that that hi hat just did that little thing on the side there it reminds me of something and I want to point it out to everyone so it, and if anyone can connect to that we start looking at things slightly differently um, oh suddenly like you've just it's the bait and switch you've just you've you've got people to stop thinking about the thing that was a bit negative and got them thinking about something that's a bit either silly or fun or um, either way, they're just not looking in that same direction. And then great. Now I just push the session on, we'll go back to where we were and we've just sort of successfully like swerved that whatever that little thing might, might've been. And maybe it was not going to be anything, but at least it's not a problem. You can see it's, there's just a lot of similarities. It almost doesn't matter what the genre is these days. It's, um, it's always the same stuff. And like you've said before, it's, to do with people's insecurities, it's to do with um, people knowing that they need they need to be on point and they in a in a vulnerable state where they want to do something that they hope is going to come across as confident and meaningful and important, um, but it doesn't yet exist. And there's always that um, that fear inside the person that they're not going to be able to do it. But there's the bravado that needs to be there because music is like stacked with these, or being in a band or just being a musician is stacked with all of these sort of interesting like emotional kinds of like armory and, and strange facades and all that sort of stuff that that need to exist because you're in a metal band so you've got to like have something about you that's metal or you're in a folk band so you must kind of be this that the other thing or you're a classical musician so you need to have this type of approach to something like that but the, the fundamental might be always be the same that you're nervous and you have self-doubt um so being able to just pop all of those bubbles and make those things just not seem like a thing and just get someone so that they just feel comfortable enough to do the thing as well as they do it at home is always the goal for me and that's why I like the style of how we've set up the studio it does feel a bit like walking into someone's you know or your mate's house you know it's a safe space as well it's a safe space yeah and and like I say it's 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 deliberately try we try to keep it affordable so that you don't have to have sessions that are um you walk in there and immediately it's like, you know, I, I do have some clients that come in and they'd like timetable everything to like 15 minute incre- increments. Um, and that can work sometimes if everyone's on the clock as session musicians and it's that kind of thing and you know people aren't going to need more than one or two takes of a particular thing, then yeah, you can get that done. And that's quite challenging and um, rewarding as an engineer because you're, you're also working at that pace and it's nice to be given charts and kind of follow things on that level and know that you're doing a really diligent job and you're not having to sort of interact with people on that kind of emotional level you're just sort of being the technician um is nice is a nice thing i get to do sometimes um but the production stuff yeah it's i mean i have much less uh, much fewer 
production clients than I'd actually like. There's a lot of people that I do, I feel like I basically assume that role, but it's not really necessarily um, painted as that. It's just, you know, oh, it's, you know, that was good engineering. It's like, okay, well, it was, I think it was a bit more than that. <laughs> but um, like I say, a lot of people, especially over here in the UK, it seems they're not, um, um, either either they're not aware of the value that um, a producer can really like lend to their project um, or they've just got confusion over what the role actually is or they think it's what an engineer inherently does or they think a producer is someone that makes beats um, because these are all kind of like concepts that sort of fly around and none of them really completely ring true to my direct experience of what I feel like it actually is um, although it encompasses all of those things I have to make beats sometimes it's like you, 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 it's just part of what you do um, I think you've captured the ambiguity and diversity of the role and how for the artist who is willing, there is huge advantage to be gained from a true creative partnership like I think we enjoy. Well, like I say, like it's, it is, it's the bridge. It's the bridging element that is the easiest way to kind of explain it. Um, you know, and I think for me too, have, having played in bands for a long time and you know, I, I sit down and play guitar every day, I'm actively writing stuff and I kind of get what it's like to try and record that and try and put it together and 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 sweat over my own music uh, until it sounds right and feel when I'm trying to record it like feel like shit when I can't quite get it how I want it and, and go through all of that stuff it's not I'm no stranger to it it's not it's not coming out of nowhere but I've definitely done sessions as a guitarist where whoever's in charge of it sort of creatively or technically doesn't have that perspective you know they're not a musician themselves or whatever so they don't quite they don't quite give me or I felt the um the space when tracking to understand that you can't just kind of you like you need to give like feedback needs to be something that fe like feels like direct and feels like you're working with someone who's being really attentive and whatever you're doing is being listened to you know there's nothing worse I've found than when I'm I'll do a take and someone goes cool yep just let one more Unless it's understood that you're just doing doubles or you've already agreed, let's just do four in a row and then we'll move on, you know, it's going to be cool in there. But if you do something, I can imagine as a vocalist it must be awful to do something and then someone goes, cool, we'll just get another, without any kind of like direction of why are we doing another exactly. It was essential for me because it's a very lonely space to occupy when that instrument in particular and your words are on display. I think also when you're used to playing guitar and singing at the same time, you suddenly feel stripped of your armour or your weapon. And everyone has an opinion on the vocal. Everyone is a critic when it comes to the lyrics. Feedback, even when it's flowing, can make you feel defensive. However, navigating a good process and providing constructive feedback that I could work on was our experience. Well, I think you sort of mitigated that too by sort of on the outset like welcoming that as a, like a I want to hear criticisms I want hear all the lyrics like let's discuss them as we go um, and and have everyone involved and I really like that because I don't often I find myself with the vocalist and it's me and the vocalist for a band and and it's 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 me and that person and, and this is maybe if even if I'm just engineering um, who are making all the decisions about what the vocal should be doing and the rest of the band are kind of just on fucking Instagram or whatever and I'm like this is the most important part of your song whether or not you realise it this is what everyone's going to be paying attention to so you might as well get on board because if you don't like it or if people don't like this song it's probably going to be because of something to do with this vocal 
the most important thing that's happening right now. Um, so I'm, I'm always really sort of dumbfounded when people don't want to involve themselves in like arguably the most important part of the song. Um, and it might not be that to them and, and that's why. In which case that's fine, but quite often in that time I will uh, encourage people to leave the control room or something like that. Or, um, because there's, no, you know, there's just nothing worse than you turn the talk back on and the singer's just done the take and all they hear is like people laughing and obviously not paying attention. Um, and that's something that is just not really welcome on, on my sessions. If I can tactfully reduce that from being a thing or if I can even better get everyone involved so that like a take finishes and the first thing they hear is applause or something. Even if it's a little bit bullshit, like, I mean, just to keep, just to make sure that that poor person's not like in a space where they don't, where, like you've said, they feel completely sort of isolated and like they've got no sort of points of reference, you know? So it's almost a year since we were in London on the boat together. So much has changed personally and to our whole social context. And what I'm curious about is what have you taken forward from that experience? When you think about it, what stands out? I think for me it was... Um there was just something just sort of so comfortable and familiar working with you guys and the way that we worked. Um, it's because it, it's a type of working style that you know we naturally sort of went to because that's how we've worked in the past where we've where we've been able to. But again, I don't really get to do that that often here. Like things are quite different now compared to when we were making records ten years ago. Um, I'm doing a lot more albums or not even albums actually like sort of four song EPs or even just a couple of songs or even one song um, and it's always like a bit at a time so it's you do maybe one or two days and then a month later you do another couple of days and so projects end up being quite drawn out but but that's what needs to happen because people can go I can afford to do this much now and then I have to save more and then I can do a little bit more and um, and that that's fine I'm still kind of getting used to how I how I actually plan for that because at any one time I might have 12 or 15 different records that I'm handling that are all at various states and um, I'll sit down of like a you know if I've got some free time to work on something and be like right where am I going to go today like what all of these things I need to do um, where, where should I start as opposed to kind of going I'm in I'm in this record like with you guys this is this is what I'm doing I'm not doing anything else, there is nothing else, there's just this, and I really loved being able to just stay in that. And and even during the mixing, after you guys had left, you know, I was I just had my own kind of like, right, I get up in the morning, the first thing I do from like 6 a.m. is just fill my headphones with like, just some nice brutal flame <laughs> for like four hours, and then I'll go off and, and, and go to work. And um, I think, yeah, I think the, the takeaway is just, just the, the thoroughness of the production Obviously, the the fun that we had because we we're all old friends. Um, I, I I I feel like I still have sore sides from how much I laughed during the, those sessions. I don't think I've laughed as much at anything since. Um, and I and I really I really love that. Uh, I wish there was a bit more of that. You know, like it can be a really really serious place. And I think for us it, it was like in terms of when it needed to be. You know, there was there was literally blood, sweat and tears. There was all three of them in that week. Um, but, you know, most of the tears were from laughter. Most of the blood was from effort, you know, in terms of poor old um, drummer's hands and whatnot. Um, 
so it's 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 a, it's the perspective. Looking back, it's like that is rewarding. That was that was work done really well, very efficiently. We did so much in such a short space of time. Um, the fact that you guys came all the way over here was not lost to me. It felt like like a kid at Christmas, um, having my mates come round. You know, I mean, I ten years ago, whatever it was, went off to the UK, and I've kind of just been doing my thing over there and. And people, you know, in New Zealand are like, oh, how's it going? I'm like, yeah, it's good. So to actually have friends be like, this is actually what I'm doing was, re- was really special because it's not, it doesn't happen. I've had a couple of friends who have sort of come over casually for, for other reasons, but it doesn't actually happen that often because why would it? It's the other side of the world. Um, so that was not lost to me. I felt really, like, um, positive and proud of what I'd achieved ha- and having you guys to come and check it out was was we've felt good and it's quite a hard thing it's like it's not a very kiwi thing to to sort of big up yourself like that but that's how i felt when you guys got to come over and um and and work there because i was like this is cool this is something that you're never going to forget um so it's a sense of achievement i think um a sense of that work ethic getting so much done and then just a sense of listening back to it now and just Still being surprised at all of the, all the levels of which I can and still enjoy it, which is often not the case with finished productions. You sort of hear the first ten seconds of a song and think, "Oh yeah, that motherfucker! I don't need to hear that." <laughs> I heard that now. <laughs> Whereas every time you guys put out another song, I, I get to sort of really enjoy it, enjoy it again. For, for, you know, but it's fresh now because it's been a year, and I've, I've not really listened to the stuff, and except for when you put one out, because that's. It's it's a nice way to do it, you know. Hearing it through the lens of it's it's that's actually out now is um is a really special place for any production to get to. Well, it means the world to us. Being able to review it by releasing the songs in this phased way keeps it alive for me. I feel very connected to that experience. It was so indelible for me. It feels both a long time ago and recent. And I think that's because of the quality of experience that we had, and to your point earlier, the effort that was made and the result achieved. Not just in terms of musical output, but four humans doing some interesting work together in a really unique space. That was special for all of us. So, thank you. Absolutely, my pleasure, bro. (laughs) 